welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on October 20th, 2018 at Pilgrim House in Provincetown, Massachusetts. The event was part of an annual Day of the Dead festival, so the theme was death. Storyteller of the evening is James. I told a story here a couple of years ago uh, about an accident I was in when I was 11 or 12 years old. I can't really remember. I was in a bicycle accident with a girl on the back of my bike. And we cracked up and she died. And... uh, and I've been thinking about the rest of the story. Um, the rest of the story is the rest of my life from that day that this happened. And, uh, fuck. Honestly, I don't, I, I'm not even sure I can go there. <laughs> so much for setting the tone. Um, yeah, it was, it was bad, sure. I mean, that would be bad for any child to go through. Um, things were already bad. And that was sort of uh, an event that took place that... A death that I carried with me for... A good 20 years, well, 25 before I even thought about it again, during which time I was basically trying to kill myself. Uh, Alcoholism, drug addiction, jail, violence, fights. I I hated myself. I was in a sort of, uh, what's the word? I just put myself out to pasture, you know? And there's an old, uh, something I learned, I've been in therapy for a long time, on and off, and there's this expression, what wires together, fires together. So for me, at that day, you know, I had this girl on the back of the bike, and it was very rare at that time in my life to have a happy moment. Um, But I was, at that moment, this girl needed a ride, a bunch of us were heading to another kid's house, and that was a big deal. I had this brand new bike, and this girl was on the back. She lived next door. And I was happy, like really happy, you know? And then, you know, something bad happened. And those two events sort of wired together. And I've struggled ever since t- with joy. Like every time something feels good or exciting or hopeful. Um, there's this immediate accompanying sense of dread and fear and panic. And uh, so, like I said, I tried a lot of things. And it wasn't until I was about 28, 29 years old and I was working for a tree company, hanging off ropes with chainsaws, which I still do to this day. 
And I started getting cut like every week or two and ending up in the emergency room. And every time I ended up in the emergency room, I'd have this episode where I would just freak out and leave. And I, you know, this began my work around this event. Um, it was my unconscious, my unconscious trying to bring it forward, to heal it. Um, and I realized that the day that this happened, I never remembered going to the hospital or ambulances or any of that shit. And I still don't. Um, so here I am, I'm almost 60 years old. And I've done all kinds of, you know, I've been in a lot of, I went in treatment centers a couple times and I've had a lot of good shrinks. Um, but the healing of it didn't really start to make sense or I didn't really want to do it until I had a daughter. I have, a, I have a daughter who's almost nine years old. She'll be nine years old on the 28th of this month. And uh, she's happy. She's a happy little girl. She has never been traumatized. And it's hard. It's hard being a dad to her, but it never seemed more important uh, for me to heal personally. And the truth is, you know, it is not, there's no uh, beginning, middle, or end of the story. It's a story that just goes on. Uh, I recently got back into therapy because some things have been coming up. And, uh, man, I was like, so, I was like, I'm going to go up there. You know, I like to come up and, like, make people laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks, man. I just, I don't know. Couldn't fucking do it tonight. Uh. <laughs> anyway, I guess I brought myself up here to, you know, continue the trying to heal this situation. Because um. I found this is such a powerful, you know, this is like 20 shrink sessions in one. It really is. It's, it's an old, it's one of the oldest therapies there is, is speaking in front of a group. So anyway, all right, thank you. Let's please welcome to the stage Mr. Jerry Riley. Jerry Riley, yes. I love that Egyptian motivational, you know, everything dies. I feel motivated already. Um, Anyway, about 20 years ago, the phone rang one night, and it was my friend Zini. She called up, said, how would you like to go to India? And it uh, turned out she had arranged to swap her little apartment in Manhattan for this huge, sprawling apartment in New Delhi. So a really short time, a couple of weeks later, uh, my wife and I and Zini went off to India. None of us had ever been there. We spent two weeks in New Delhi and, and traveled around there. And it was the most wild trip I've ever had. Every day you'd walk out the door and you'd see sights and sounds and smells of you know, just wild, crazy experiences. We loved it. It was just, it was amazing. So at the end of two weeks, 
Zini had wanted to go to this place called Varanasi. I had never heard of it. It was a couple hundred miles away. So we, we flew from Delhi to Varanasi because um, her friend had told us you have to go to this place. So we get there. We get a cab at the airport, take us into the city. Uh, the cab drives out and uh, out to, on this main road. And like every main road in India, it's complete mayhem. It's, you know, it's cars and trucks and cows and kids and bicycles, and it's just insane. And we're driving down the road, and there's all this stuff. And by this point, we've been there a couple of weeks. We've had this, and we're like, okay, we're driving down the road. And the cab driver sort of switches into tour guide mode. And he says, Varanasi is a very ancient city. It's thousands of years of history. And it's famous because when you die, you must bring the dead body to Varanasi. It's very important that, that when you die, you bring the dead body to the Ganges River. And all of a sudden he says, oh, dead body. And he points at this car going by, and there's a bundle on the roof of the car. And we realize this is a corpse, like strapped to the roof of the car. It's 85, 90 degrees, a sunny day. And like, oh my God, this is, now I've seen a lot of sights in the last two weeks, but this kind of starts to freak me out. This is bizarre. So he goes on and he says, if you are Hindu, you live 50 miles, you live 100 miles, you must bring, when you die, the dead body must come to the Ganges at Varanasi. Oh, dead body. And he points, there's another car going by. And at this point, I'm like, this is just, this is fucking weird. <laughs> so uh, he takes us to this hotel, and a uh, little Indian hotel. We go in, we check into the room, and something happens that's totally out of character for me. Now, my wife, she's got this amazing imagination. She can go off on flights of fancy all the time on things. And I'm an engineer. I tend to be more kind of, you know, <laughs> but... All of a sudden, we get in this hotel room, and I smell something. And I get it in my head. And I don't know today, I mean, I can't tell you if this is true or not. But there's this smell. It's not a chemical smell. It's this smell. It's not pleasant. It's very faint. It's not strong. It's a faint smell. But it goes right to your core, and it's nasty. And, I just, and, I, and it's like, I know. I know that I'm smelling rotting human flesh. It's coming through. It's one of those bodies. It's in another room. And I'm like losing my mind. And this is kind of like, and my wife and Zini are like looking at rolling and, I, and I'm like, I cannot sleep in a place with rotting human flesh. We have to move. And... They're like, oh, come on. And I, like, I'm totally insistent. And this is not my personality. So we move. We move to another hotel. So um, the next day, we set the alarm for really early in the morning. Zini's friend has told her, at Varanasi, you have to do this. We get up before dawn. We go down to the river. And we find a guy. And we say, will you take us out on a boat? And these boats and whatever. And so we get in this boat. And he paddles us out just as the sun is starting to rise on the far side of, of the Ganges River. Uh, it's a sight I will never forget in my whole life. And as the sun just starts to break up, all the people of Varanasi, like every morning, come pouring down to the river, and they all walk down the ghats and bathe in the river. And it's, it's an amazing sight. And the guy's paddling us out. It's a big, wide river at that place. And he's paddling us out. And then all of a sudden, the boat guy goes into his tour guide thing. Varanasi is a very ancient city. And when you die, you bring that body to the river. Now, poor man, poor man, you burn the body in the factory. And he points. 
and you realize this big building up on the riverbank is a crematorium. And he says, rich man, they burn the body in the wood fire. And he points a couple of places. And on the riverbanks, there's these two big fires. And you realize, oh my god, those are funeral pyres. And in one of them, you can actually see like a limb sticking out. And you go, whoa, this is wild. And all the people are bathing in the river, whatever. Three people, no burn dead bodies. Holy man, no burn. Little baby, no burn. Uh, mother, mother with, uh, with the baby, no burn. You take the dead body, you wrap it in um, um, a cloth, you put big rocks, tie with ropes. Take the dead body out to the middle of the Ganges. Throw it over. Down, down, down. Boom. One day, two day, the fish, they eat the ropes. The body, three day, four day, the ropes break. The body rise to the top of the Ganges and float down the river. Holy river, no bacteria. At this point, I'm thinking, this is the most insane, crazy, I, I, this is like, I'm just losing, this is nuts. This is, uh, you know, fucking insane. Um, but a couple of years later, I found myself in Ireland carrying my mother-in-law's body on, on a box on my shoulder out her front door and through the city streets. And as we walked down the middle of the city streets, all of her neighbors came out of their houses to see her dead body the last time as it went by to the, to the cemetery. And then since then, my brother and my mother and my father, they've all died. And we took their dead bodies and we filled them full of chemicals to preserve them. And we got these beautiful boxes and we put their dead body in this beautiful box and we invited all of our friends and family to come see the dead body for the last time before we buried it. And I realized that day on the river in, 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 in Varanasi, uh, it was the first time I realized death is a weird thing and no matter where you go anywhere in the world, our ways of dealing with death are really kind of bizarre and strange and mysterious. And another thing I learned that day on the river is something that has stayed with me ever since. And it's a wonderfully, beautifully blunt phrase. And I always say it with just a hint of an Indian accent, and that's dead body. Thank you. All right, coming to the stage right now is Timothy S. Timothy S. There he is. Keep so it I'm going. I'm back to September 14th, 2018, about a month ago. Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Newcomb Hollow Beach. In my own memory, in my experience, I'm a surfer and I've lived here for about 10 years. Um, I've spent countless hours in the water, on the beaches, having the time of my life. So this Friday on the whole afternoon, it's sunny, it's beautiful, crystal clear blue water, world-class waves, the most 
extraordinary day. You looked around, you looked, you saw smiles, twinkly eyes. Everybody was just in heaven. I mean, literally, if you could count a day that was heaven on earth, it was that evening. It led into the sunset. You could see even the light of the sunset reflected on the waves. We were stoked. September 15th, 5 a.m., woke up, got to the beach, sun rose, another beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. World-class waves. Wind, light offshore, water, could see to the bottom of the sand, almost like you were in the Caribbean. It was that beautiful. Sun shining, and you know that feeling after Labor Day? You're just like, it's a beach day. You're stoked. There's not many people here, but everybody that's here lives here. You know everyone. You are seeing your family again, your friends, the people that live here. About 11 in the morning, my, you know, my own life, I get out of the water, and I am just riding that high. I'm just like, you know, there's going to be waves all day. We are, we are having it. This is our time. This is what we live for. Come about 11.45, I'm sitting on the beach. Uh, just a little lunch break, take some time in between sessions and um, eat a little lunch, have a burrito. Close my eyes, put some headphones in, listen to some music and just, uh, I just sat back and I was like, God, this is, this is life, this is it. And then I opened my eyes and I look around and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? People are running. And I look at the woman next to me, and I'm like, I take out my headphones, and I'm like, what the fuck, what happened? What's going on? She looks at me white in the face, she goes, shark attack. And I was like, what? And she points. And we look down the beach, I'm maybe about in the center, right from the parking lot, right in front. And I'm standing there, and I'm like, oh my god. And there's a little bit of a crowd happening down the way, maybe about 100 meters from where I'm at. Not too far, but people are starting to, you know, wake up and see, oh, this is, this is something, something's happened. Something real has happened here. So in my little high slumber, I kind of just get up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk slowly. I mean, this is, you know, you go from heaven from one second to kind of this panic in the next. And you look over and I just start walking, walking. I'm like, shark attack. I'm like, okay, okay. And I see a group of people forming down, and then I hear the ambulance, and I see the first responders coming, and, and uh, you know, people are just running. And, you know, I get close enough to the point where I see, okay, all right, there's enough people. There's, there's enough people around. You know, I, I'm not going to, you know, intrude. And I just stood there, and I just watched. And I could just see two people down, one person down on the beach. First responders come. I just see another group form, and I'm just, okay, okay, what's happening? Up on a stretcher. People are walking, a few of my friends, everybody that I see, and a few people that I know walking down. We just start huddling in a group, walking down the beach, the clearing down the beach. Everyone's yelling. The ambulance are up, waiting for you know, them to get this guy in. And I just look, and I'm just standing past, and I just, and I see it. I just see a wetsuit cut open, blood dripping down, pouring out. Not necessarily pouring out, but just here's this body, just on a stretcher being carried down the beach into an ambulance. All that happens, the ambulance moves along, they go away, and usually if this does happen like it does, you'd hear helicopters, we hear a lot of things. We've, this has happened before, so we kind of know what to hear, and there's no helicopters, and it was just silent. We we're like, okay, well, ambulance take off, we're all looking at one another, we just look in each other's eyes, and we're just like, you know, who? 
Was it you? Was it them? Who was it? Was it one of us? Slowly but surely, the answer started to come in. We found out who it was. His name was Arthur uh, Medici. He was a 26-year-old kid. Um, I stuck around for a few hours until I just left. It was just a little bit much, and I just needed to have my own space. And you know, I'm kind of traumatized in my own way. And about an hour after, we found out that he didn't make it. And I lost it. Having just come from that space, that close, that proximity to actually seeing a body dead in front of your eyes changes your game. Coming from complete heaven to pure terror and panic one second to the next. I mean, how, what, what a paradox. What a juxtaposition. What a, what a, a moment. How do you define one to the next? And I'm telling this story today because I wanted to fast forward to this morning. It's uh, October 20th, 2018, and um, a few hundred people gathered at Newcomb Hollow Beach. Uh, his family, the family of Arthur Medici, came here to Wellfleet, uh, next town over, and um, we held a memorial. A, a, a celebration of life. And in the surfing community, usually we honor another surfer's life or lost waterman by paddling out and forming our circle and saying a prayer. Uh, so all that happened this morning, and you know, here I look around at maybe another 50 or so other watermen and women, uh, surfers of the community, another 150 people on the beach, all here gathered together to uh, celebrate life. And uh, his family offered a chant that really uh, struck of some of the last words that they spoke to him, to his brother who was in the water with him at the time. And he said, this is what I love. This is the life I want to live. And as a surfer, as a waterman, as somebody who has such a close relationship to the ocean, to being connected to the waves, to the mystery of life and death as it is, as it so happens to now the reality that we face here as uh, people of the water in uh, Cape Cod, You have to go for it. You have to really do what you love. And if you don't, I mean, no one's going to stop you. But the risk is real. And you never know. But what I do know overall, and that no matter what happens to anyone, how it happens, is that love will prevail any trauma that could ever happen. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so let's welcome our next storyteller to the stage, and I hope I say your name right. Robin Lapides, Lapidus, Lapidus. Thank you very much. So, um, and it's Lapidus, but we'll answer to anything that gets us a table at a restaurant. So, um, so my family, uh, we, we had our own sense of humor, and um, it's okay if you laugh. So I brought this. This is a, 
my personal um, teen, keen teen pencil case, and in it is my dad. <laughs> so this is him, and uh, he actually came with a stand that looks like this. It, the, the Provincetown Business Guild logo is on the bottom. I'm not sure why, but um, anyway, so this is, this is my dad. What he's wearing is significant to the story, and I'm here to tell you about my father's death clothes. And I'm, I have a feeling there's some, some other name for whatever funerary garb. I'm not sure, but that's the story. So I'll get to his outfit which you may notice is a pilgrim um, costume. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so let's see. I have to tell you a bit about my origin story. I, um, my parents were from the Bronx and Queens and my mother was what we, we called the, po the poor relative of some very wealthy uh, relatives who owned the largest Jewish funeral home in New York City, the Riverside Chapel. Anybody been there? Okay. So, but she was the poor relative, and that, it, we still got a discount, a family discount. Um, but we were, the, the, the people who owned the funeral chapel, the Riverside, which is really large and um, very imp important in New York, uh, were always kind of fascinating relatives of ours. And as my mother used to say, my first uh, furniture or chairs were shiva stools, which, she, which were made out of wood. Now they give you this weird wood-printed cardboard. But um, so it was made out of wood. She painted them white and pink and put Disney decoupage stickers on them, like Tinkerbell, and, and you know, that was kind of, that tells you a lot about my mom. She always kind of, she was crafty and creative and always made things much more interesting than they, they were intended. So um, they lived in New York, and eventually they moved out to New Jersey, and they, my dad was a food broker, and uh, he had been invited to join the family business, and he was like, no way. I, I refuse to work in a funeral home. I, I will be a food broker, which was the other side of the family's business. And he had this incredible, um, impeccable style. So we, we always said he was a meticulous dresser. That was the word, meticulous which really meant that he had his own comb and no one was allowed to use his comb. And if he lost his comb, he went a little nuts. So we had many combs staged in places. He wore three-piece suits and he always had suits made for him, which was you know, much more common uh, even in the 60s and the 70s. And he wore three-piece suits with a, his, his father's gold watch pin thing and um, a tie clip and, and they were really beautiful suits. And he kind of had a tie fetish. So he probably had about 400 ties um, when he passed away. And they were uh, like Emilio Pucci and you know labels that got me very excited because they were from the 60s and the 70s and they were designer things and they were paisley and reptiles and I think he had like a hundred red reptiles. So anyway, um, 
So he was a meticulous dresser, and uh, they had a nice life, and he was kind of known for being stylish, and he was also known to be a volunteer. So he volunteered in Bedminster, New Jersey, to bring the charter of the town. It was a very, um, you know, one of the more original towns in New Jersey. Out from, it had been found somewhere, and he was going to bring it out to the town. And the town got really excited. It was an anniversary year, and they had a battle reenactment and a pig roast, which is weird. And um, the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra came and did the battle hymn of the Republic. And they, the township committee man, he was a township committee man, uh, and there were women too, but they were all called men. And they dressed up as pilgrims, which makes no sense. And um, so my mother was in charge of the, the costuming and because she was the creative one. And uh, she sent for these, uh, she sent, she called a bunch of people like in, I don't know, Princeton and said, can you send us your battle reenactment like, um, you know, uh, costume line and they came and it was like muslin, which was offensive to my mother in every way. And she said to my father, if other people want to wear that, that's fine, but we're not wearing that. We're, I'm going to get us something else. So my father is wearing <laughs> probably like a, a, a flouncy, a new romantics uh, white blouse <laughs> with a pair of velvet, I think, pajama bottoms that she actually had a tailor kind of uh, scallop at the bottom and with a gold button, and uh, his socks, his regular socks, and a really expensive pair of black slippers, and she sewed this giant buckle on him. And that's what he wore, and she wore like this, like bustier thing that had, you know, crisscross ribbons and a cinched waist and a black velvet skirt, and she was like a sexy pilgrim. And, <laughs> They, they went to the event, and it was wonderful. And my, my dad actually sold tickets to the event in the supermarket parking lot for like a week. And, um, but this is the sad part. He unexpectedly got very ill, and he passed away. And everyone in the town, I mean, they loved him because he was a good township committee man and a good volunteer. But they also really, I think, felt that this event had killed him. So we had a lot of people come and say, like, you know, I should have volunteered. I really should have helped your dad. I'm so sorry. And we were like, no, you know, it's a, I mean, he had a heart issue. It's like, it's not, it wasn't the event, but you should volunteer, like, tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, so he was immortalized in the paper. I mean, and he was a township committee man. He did a lot of things. So he was immortalized in a lot of New Jersey papers, the Star-Ledger, the Bedminster Times. There were a bunch of other ones like this. In, in his pilgrim outfit, when really he was a three-piece suit guy with like a watch and a chain. Okay. So, oh no. So anyway, uh, Fast forward, we go to 
the funeral home and we walk down and uh, it's closed casket, but he's there and my mother has to identify the body and my father never wore a tie that was like given to him at a restaurant. We had to leave because he just wouldn't do it. And the funeral, he wouldn't. He wouldn't wear the house tie. He would say it would make him feel so uncomfortable, like he couldn't eat. So we left. And um, so the funeral director says to my mother, Mrs. Lapidus, is this your husband? And we're kind of behind her, and she went first. And, and she said, um, she said, yes, that is my husband, but that is not his tie. And we, we were like, oh no, you know, what, what is this? Because it could have gotten bad. And it turned out that even though we got the family discount, they fucked it all up. <laughs> and he's wearing his beautiful suit, but he's wearing the house tie, the funeral home house tie. Yes, it's true. And we stood there for a minute, and we were, we were, I could see my mother was like going to kill the funeral director, and we were like, it's okay, whatever, whatever. And uh, anyway, we decided at that point that, like, you know, you, he could get into heaven, like, in the house tie, and everything would be fine because things like ties and suits and pilgrim costumes just don't matter, uh, you know, in the afterlife. And I will tell you, though, that when we got home, the tie was in his closet. And that is 100% true, even though the three of us delivered two of the same red reptiles. I don't know why they needed two, but uh, neither one were, were left, uh, were there. So it's a mystery, and it's a wonderful story. I just have to say one more thing. So like a year, a couple of years later, we bring my dad wherever we go and when we travel. <laughs> And we were staying in Provincetown. I think we were at the Surfside Inn, and we had a particularly pilgrimy, nautical room. And a friend came to visit, and he said, "Does does ever?" He said, "That's so cool. Does every room get like a tiny pilgrim?" <laughs> so, just a thought. <laughs> I think it would be a really good concept. And that's it. Thank you. Our next storyteller, pre please come to the stage, Mary DeAngelis. Mary! There she is. Woo, keep it going for Mary. Hi. And I'm short. Oh, yes, I can't see a thing. Fabulous. Okay, so um, I'm a local and um, the beach. The back shore, the ocean is my salvation, and there's dune shacks out there, and it's so beautiful. And in the spring, this was a few years ago, in the spring, uh, it was sunny and gorgeous, but chilly still. But I figured if I walked out there really quickly, then I could work up a sweat, and I could throw myself in the ocean, which I tried to do uh, as often as I can. And even though it was probably about 40 degrees, but it was no problem. So I got out there and I walked in the dunes and I was sweating and ready. And I looked at the water and it was gorgeous, flat, calm, crystal clear. And I was high up on the dune and I just decided, okay, I'm just going to keep running. And I ripped off all my clothes and I had one of those, uh, like, 
you know, little jalaba scarf things, and that's what I was going to use. And I just naked, just running and running and running. And I'm going over the dune down to the beach. And over the winter, um, the dune had shifted a little. And, um, <laughs> and there was a, a little path that somebody, um, a little set of stairs that somebody had made that got covered up. And beside that set of stairs was a, a long rope so that if you were down um, and you were trying to get up the dune, you could grab the rope and pull yourself up. Well, here I am, naked, running as fast as I can, and I hit the stair and the rope, and somehow, in midair, as I was flying, the rope um, made a lasso and garroted both of my feet. And suddenly, I woke up, and I was laying upside down, down the side of the dune with my feet in a noose, <laughs> kind of like those like chickens that you see in Asian restaurants that are dead, and there's like just two. That was it. And I was there, naked. My scarf had gone away somewhere. And I woke up, because I think I had just, like, had a, just a pass out. And I woke up, and the first thing I thought of was, OK, where am I? Did I break anything? And I realized I didn't break anything. And the second thing I thought was, well, this is interesting, Mary. <laughs> and because I was upside down and the blood was rushing to my head, and I was stark naked, and there was not a human being in sight forever. It was just a stretch of beach, nothing, no humans. And I thought, OK, just, you know, just get yourself up, but I was hanging upside down and I don't have those like lats that you get when you work out, like, and you try to get yourself, you know, when you're upside down to your feet. And as I was doing that, the noose around my feet got tighter. So I thought, oh, I'm really in trouble here. <laughs> And I still had that kind of not really afraid, just observing. Like, wow. <laughs> and then I started to think about, so I said, OK, get really calm, because there's not a plane that's going to fly by. And is this it? Am I, am I, is this my death? And then I thought, I started to think about all those, I just said, please, God. I mean, I really had to sit with it for a while. And I said, please, God, please don't let me die a stupid death. <laughs> because I was OK with dying. I've had a really good life. But I didn't want to have a stupid death. Because you know those deaths that you hear about where people like you know choke on a chicken bone or something? and. Or you know, it, it, you know uh, stories of exposure where you know somebody gets lost in the snow because you know a, a snow storm blew in and they froze to death 
like three feet from their front door. And those things you never forget. And I didn't want to be known for that. And one of the things I thought of as I was lying there trying to calculate how long it was going to take before the blood rushed to my head, I suddenly got this memory of when I lived in Oregon, well, I moved to Oregon and I moved to like a hippie commune and I get to the commune and everybody in the commune hates this one guy in the commune and it's because the commune owned a cow, a beautiful cow that used to roam around the commune and there was a storm coming up so this guy tied the cow up and the cow got tangled in the rope and died in the storm because they told me that when an animal gets tied up uh, and they can't get out, they just die. They can't fight. And I was lying there going, okay, I just... I, I have to try here. I can't die of helplessness. I don't want to be known as, oh yeah, Mary DeAngelis, she died lying upside down, naked, in the dunes of exposure, and then a coyote ate her. <laughs> I just, uh, thank you. So, bearing that in mind, I dug my elbows in and my hands and I clawed myself halfway up and I got my fingers underneath that rope and I untied myself and walked home and <laughs> didn't die a helpless death and I'm here to tell the tale. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Next to the stage, please welcome Susie Epley. Susie Epley. Oh, I thought I was going to get away with this. Well, um, okay. Um, uh, women go to see physicians much more often than men do. And as a woman family physician, I acquired a large group of women that were coming to me for their care. And family practice has a little saying, the uh, philosophy of caring for their patients from the cradle to the grave. So after many years, I knew their medical histories and of course their personal histories as well. And they came to the grave end of things. And I found myself getting a little uncomfortable with them. Um, my job had been to fix them and handle their medical problems not be around and watch them die. Um, but I was a little mad at myself for feeling this way. If they were patient in the hospital and they were at the end of their life, I would tiptoe past their door and hope that they were asleep because then I wouldn't have to go in and talk to them. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to be with them. And oops, I uh, um, was really upset with myself. And I'm like, you're hiding from these fine ladies. You're uh, like abandoning them like a loaf of moldy bread that's too old to keep. So I still couldn't go in there, but I was lucky. I had the opportunity to take a six-week medical sabbatical, and I signed up with Hospice of Western New York, where I was living at the time. And I ran around with uh, the hospice team members 
like exposing myself to people actively dying in their family and their friends and once in a blue moon, even one of their physicians. I felt like I was um, getting this set of Black and Decker tools, you know, that I could use to manage a job that I'm a, I had been trying to do with a dull kitchen knife. So back into the fray I went, and I was rounding on all the patients in, that were in there from our office. One of us did that for all the patients from our office. And I had to go into that intensive care unit and see this guy who was on a respirator. His body was totally failing, especially his lungs from emphysema, but now we call it chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, as the jargon goes. And his lungs were shot. He had so much scarring, and they just couldn't function. The only reason he was alive was because he was on this respirator. And uh, he had these two nieces that came in to see him. And he had no healthcare proxy, no living will, no other living relatives, and um, one day the nieces wanted to talk to me, and they said they knew their uncle didn't want to be alive on machines if there was no chance of recovering. So after a difficult discussion, we made the decision to take him off the respirator. And as a physician, I'd taken lots of people off respirators, but that was because they had gotten better and they didn't need it anymore. And I knew what to do. Um, uh, you administer some IV morphine, you turn all the controls to zero, you, the doctor, extubate the patient, and then you observe for cessation of respirations. And so, pounding heart, um, I did this. And I said, okay, why don't we stand in a circle um, with the patient? So we held his hands, the two nieces, myself, the two ICU nurses, the two ICU residents who were doing their rotation there, and the ICU nurse. And I said, uh, would somebody like to say a prayer? And someone said, you say one. And I'm like, oh, God. I don't know if I can remember a prayer at this point. I don't know. But the phrase Hail Mary came into my mind. So I hoped I could, you know, get through it. And I came to the end. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. And with that, the, uh, their uncle did stop breathing. So we let go of his hands, and um, after much eye-dabbing, I was out in the um, hallway with the intensive care unit nurse, and um, that was not easy. I moaned to him, and he said it should never be easy. So a couple of years later, I was uh, at a hospice conference, and a young woman came up to me, and she shook my hand, and she said she wanted to thank me that the, uh, she was one of the residents in the circle that day, in the intensive care unit, and she just wanted me to know that uh, um, that experience was one of the most important in her training. So we held hands and looked into each other's eyes and nodded, and then we went on our separate ways to uh, meet up with our next opportunity uh, to be real physicians from the cradle to the grave. And um, lots of times it's not easy, but um, one of the things that I got to know uh, one of the privileges of being a physician was to support people when they came to their opportunity to know what to do and, and how to do it. Thank you. And let's welcome to the stage now Michelle Renee. Michelle Renee. 
So how many Welflesians are here? So the houses in Wellfleet, they each have their own soul. My great-grandmother's house was on Cross Street in Wellfleet. We used to run through where the horse used to be from her house on Cross Street to the old post office. That's the first time I saw a really big horse penis. I was way too young for that. <laughs> and then my grandmother's house, which she bought on Commercial Street in the 70s, was the other house with a soul. And the houses in Wellfleet to me have souls and they speak like no other town I've been in. And my pathway in Wellfleet was from my great-grandmother's house to my grandmother's house and to Newcomb Hollow and to Great Pond and occasionally to P-Town on PB. So one day when I showed up on the PB bus in Wellfleet, I got off and I schlepped my bag. I was on my own to my grandmother's house. And she had this huge old house that was from the 19, or excuse me, 1800s. And at some point, someone had like cut the house in half, lifted up the second floor, made it the third floor, put in another second floor, and it had seven bedrooms. So everybody in our family could stay there. And there were two bedrooms in the cottage behind. So it was a huge family home. And that house had stories. And so did my great-grandmother's house. Both attics, when you would go in them, you would just feel like and look in the mirror. And it was like my first real conscious experience of mediumship. But I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I just would feel weird because each house had a story, and through the generations of my grandmother's house, our family stories were woven into that house, and then the Snow's family stories were woven into that house, and then the, the ship captain stories were woven into that house, and it had been kind of like a halfway house for fishermen who would like come in and stay there and then leave. And I was used to being able to see things um, that, I, that were unseen in houses that I had lived in. And I could never really understand what the hell was going on, and it really freaked me out. And in San Francisco, I did my first clairvoyant meditation class because I lived in this old home in Noe Valley, which was this pristine, gorgeous old home. And, and I saw like this woman trying to get in the window. I mean, just crazy shit. So I sat myself down in a clairvoyant meditation class and I thought, okay, it's gonna get better. I'm gonna be good now. I can like, like. <sighs> well, it got worse because I realized what I was seeing of the unseen world was actually true. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I walked up to my grandmother's house and this was the first time I knew something about a house that was going to happen and I couldn't go in the house. I had invited all of my friends from San Francisco. We were in New York for an event. And I invited everybody down to this big, huge house for a party, and not one person came. And I couldn't understand why. But in that moment, when I stood at the doorway to my grandmother's house, I knew I'd, I'd never see her again. I'd never see her alive in her home again.
and she was still alive. She was um, up in Alaska with my mom because she wasn't doing well, and she needed assistance, and she needed care. And I really couldn't go in the house because I didn't know what to do. Because if I opened that door, that meant it was real. And I didn't at all doubt what I saw and what I, uh, what I felt. But if I opened that door, it would be from then on, every time I was in that house, she would not be there. So I went inside and I laid down on my great aunt's bed and I called my grandmother. And it felt like, it felt like a lie. It felt so just weird calling her and saying, I love you, come home. Just come home now. Just, who are you? Do you know you're about to die? What do you think about that? Are you trying to act like it's going to be okay? What did you think about my grandfather who was such a goddamn asshole? Will you really tell me? Can I, can I tell you what it feels like to be me right now? Can you put down your rosary so that you can hear me? A few months later, I was in San Francisco, back at my home, and I had watched this movie, you know, remember that 90s movie, Robert Downey Jr., and all of these spirits had gotten attached to him from the bus that had, like, all these people gotten killed, and they, like four of them, and he used to talk to them when he was a baby, and then, and then when he was an adult, he started to see them again and freaking out, like, holy fuck, what do I do? <laughs> and I saw that movie this one night, and it brought so much comfort to me, and um, I... I felt this relief of, okay, other people see things that they don't really understand and they can't put it in a box and they can't explain it to anybody, but it's real. The next morning when I went out to go get a coffee, I looked down at the bottom of the, I was about to take a step on the sidewalk and there was this little tiny Mother Mary pendant and I knew that that was the day my grandmother was going to die and I just, I just put it in my pocket, and I held on to it. And I got the call later on that afternoon that she went into Cape Cod Hospital for um, cardiac arrest. And my whole family came in, and I was flying back from San Francisco, and it was the 90s, so there were the phones on the planes. And I picked up the phone, and I called, and she had just died. And I looked out the window, and there were these enormous cumulus clouds and I thought just she's just she's in the ethers now and when I got off the PB bus in town that day I don't remember if anybody picked me up or if I walked to my house on my own but when I got there my whole family was there and she was now in the bones of the house thanks We have, put your hands together for Alec V. Y'all were not lying. It is bright up here. Um, okay, so 
my grandfather passed away when I was really young. And I got to see the effects of that death trickle through my father's side of the family. Um, my, oh wow, my voice cracked. Uh, um, my, fa my, my entire father's side of the family um, ended up becoming this very quiet, introverted family. We didn't talk much to each other. We didn't call each other unless we needed to. Um, but there was a sense of loving always when that happened. I got a real true glimpse of it when I was 18, 19 years old and I decided to move to Maine to live with my uncle Robert. And he was the one that was most affected. He was the youngest of my father's siblings. My father was the oldest and he was the youngest and they had a 10 year gap between each other. And I, I'll tell you this, I knew my grandfather for a little bit and I'll get to that later and end it on a lighter note. But my uncle has dedicated a lot of space down in his basement as a um, altar to him or in the terms of Day of the Dead, uh, an ofrenda, if you will. And every time I um, go back to visit now, we get to this awkward part where he feels like he needs to bring me down to the basement. You know, it's a very light basement. I mean, he has a, like a, he has like a faux, like, I don't know what to call it. But he has, he has like this uh, fake pelt with sunglasses on and he called it his cool cat. But he, <laughs> but he, he would walk me through all of these items and he would walk me through each and every thing that reminded him of my grandfather. And uh, whether it was empty cigar boxes, old hunting uh, licenses, Old photo. He loves showing me photographs of their uh, one of the few uh, boating, few times they went boating and fishing, and I realized that my father got a chance to see well didn't see a side of my grandfather that my uncle did, and my uncle um, very much told me that the day he he will always remember the day my grandfather died. And he was living in Maine at the time. And when it happened, he, he said it was a blur. But I don't know if you guys know the distance between. I, I'm from upstate New York around Albany region. And that hour, that drive is five hours. He said he made it there in two hours flat. Just drove right through. Did not give a shit about anything that was happening with law enforcement. He didn't get pulled over. He was very lucky for him that he didn't because he made that in two hours. But it was amazing how deeply affected he was by it. And I think about that a lot. And I spent a lot of time with my grandmother going over family genealogy, which she has extensive amounts on. She and I sat for like eight hours one day just talking about my grandfather's side of the family, not even hers. I will tell you this, though, to end it on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, my. My uncle is uh, 
working through it in a really great way and he's starting to express it and he's starting to be present in the family a little more. I have two fantastic memories of my grandfather and um, the first one was that he somehow in his life filled out a form and now he has a lifetime supply of Tic Tacs orange ones. Every time I would go over as a like two, three year old, I got a tick back. <laughs> it was great. Um, and the other thing was also a really great uh, family thing because I have a sister and a cousin on my dad's side. Well, I have a sister and a cousin on my dad's side. Clarification. Um, he would sit us at the kitchen table and he taught us how to sing with spoons, where he would bang spoons on his head, have his mouth open and go. <laughs> I swear I get my goofiness from that man. Um, but it's, it's just the way Family's work is just so interesting, and you get to see such true, honest sides of the people you surround yourself with when a death occurs. And it's in those times that you really see who you want around you and who needs the comfort of being, um, who, who needs just like to talk about it. So um, I'll end there. Thank you very much. One more, let's welcome to the stage to wrap up our show, Kate Wallace Rogers. Hi. All right, I can see all of you. I don't know what they were talking about. Okay, uh, I do wanna start with one little thing uh, from Mary Oliver, and she says um, in her poem, I think it's a summer, uh, The Summer Day, doesn't everything die at last and too soon. Okay, that's good enough. <laughs> All right, <clears throat> so when I was a sophomore in college, I signed up to take this class from a new, um, a big author who was coming to campus just for this one class, and her name was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she wrote this massive book called On Death and Dying, and she would take you through all the stages of dying, and I kind of, signed up probably because I heard it was big and other people did. And then I got to the class and I was like, I don't know from death and dying. It was just tumble so many years ago. And, and um, I, I really didn't know any humans who had died. Um, so I, I dropped the course. And, uh, and then within the next two years, I lost the five, five most important people in my life. And um, it started uh, that summer with uh, Mary Decay, who is my favorite high school teacher. And we had done um, this, she was an English, English teacher, and uh, we did a course, uh, senior project on um, uh, James Joyce, and it was um, The Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. That's just a huge book for me. Um, so I loved working with her, and I went to her funeral, 
and um, it was the first funeral I'd been to, and uh, I was taking some time off from school after that sophomore year because you would m maybe have thought that I was trying to kill myself given how much alcohol and drugs I was consuming. So I, t I knew I should take some time off, so I was also thinking, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go away from college and figure out why I'm in college. And I did that, and at the funeral, I met um, Mrs. Bedrick, my friend Brooke Bedrick's mom, and she was always the sweetest thing. She was like uber sweet. She would um, tie little tiny bows in her daughter's hair. She had three daughters, three daughters. Anyway, so uh, I was talking to Mrs. Bedrick, and she was like, well, what are you doing, Kate? And I said, well, I'm taking some time off from school. I think I want to um, try my hand at publishing. I'm a creative writing major, blah, blah, blah. She's like, well, let me just ask Peter if he has a job for you. And I totally forgot that her husband uh, was, ran a publishing company, because I never would have been able to say that if I had remembered. But anyway, so I started working at the publishing company. And within a month or so, my grandmother, uh, who had been sick and had a couple of strokes, sh she died on my boyfriend's birthday. It was kind of awkward. Um, but uh, she was older, and she had been living with my aunt, who didn't treat her very well. So it was just as well that she, she was dying um, and just seemed OK. But she was my only grandparent I ever had. And, and it was, uh, it was very sad. Um, and at her funeral, uh, I got to see a woman named Mamie Jones Peters who uh, took care of me, raising me um, when I was a kid because my, both my parents worked all the time and my mother was a travel writer, so she was gone for a lot of my childhood, you know, two, two weeks to a month at a time. And so Mamie would stay with us and she was really important to me and, um, she, uh, she had gotten Alzheimer's, and um, she's really the only person I knew closely who had had that. And um, so I, I, I had visited her a lot um, after. She, was, she was, uh, took care of us, our family, for like close to 20 years. But we were one family after another that she had taken care of, and then she took care of another one after. And when she got Alzheimer's, she um, mistook me for one of the other girls uh, in, uh, that she had taken care of. And I felt really guilty because I kind of stopped seeing her because I felt like she didn't know who I was. I wasn't going to go see her, and I felt really bad about that. But she, we went to her funeral, and she had an open casket uh, funeral. And, and I was always doing errands for her as a little kid. And um, I got... Uh, one thing I used to do for her, well, I would get her newspaper over at the ho hospital um, newsstand across the street, and I'd, you know, get Lifesavers or something, you know, a $5, a $5, $0.05 cent Hershey bar or something. Anyway, I would also help her find her teeth. She was often, like, missing her teeth, um, which were really bright pink and really bright white. And she'd stick them in her mouth, and then everything was right with the world. But she'd, she'd just be always looking for her teeth. Katie, can you go find my teeth? So um, when she was buried, they must not have been able to find her teeth, because there she was, all gone. I was like, oh my god, it was such a big insult. It's kind of like the tie thing with the father. It's like, oh my god, you didn't find her teeth? 
So anyway, so Mamie died, and that was really, uh, that was really hard. And, um, but time marches on, and so I ended up going back to uh, school via um, Vienna. I got to do a month. Uh, we had a winter term at my college, so I went for a month in Vienna, and um, I went with this nutty um, uh, German professor, and his name, he was very elitist and snobby and pretty horrible in a lot of ways, but I kind of loved him. And his name was uh, Herr Professor Dr. Kolbe. And um, he, he liked to emphasize that in German, you're not just Mr. Somebody. If you have a title, you can just like line up all the titles and, and just go for it. So he was Herr Professor Dr. Kolbe. And he had dated my, uh, the headmistress of my school, which was just weird. But he liked me for that, and, and um, in my intensive German class that I decided to torture myself with, there were six students, and one was, uh, there were two Kates out of the six, and there was the other Kate who was Gute Kätchen, which is, and I was Schlimmer Kätchen, which means like naughty Kate. Because, not because of naughty, naughty, but anyway, I, uh, anyway. So um, I just never came to class, really, or something. Anyway, so there, um, by the end of that year, um, well, right before I went to Vienna, my mom told me that she had like a quarter-sized lump in her breast. And um, so it was hard to go away, but like she always traveled. We always traveled. And she said it wasn't going to be a big problem. Um, but the end of that school year, um, Professor Colby died. And, and it happened all of a sudden. I didn't even get, like, I went, I visited him once in the hospital. And, uh, and that just seemed so, like, he had said, I, he had said he would take me to St. Martin if I learned Dutch. And I didn't even get a chance to try. So that was kind of sad, and, and he would, but he'd lived a long life. He'd had lots of stories. Um, anyway, so time went on, and, and my mom got sicker, and, and she was a kind of sick um, patient where she, she didn't want anybody to see her. She didn't want anybody to visit her. Um, so I was really the only one that she, uh, she wanted to see. And so I spent that summer uh, uh, visiting her. And um, my father barely was there. My brothers, I, I remember them visiting once. So she just thought she was going to bounce back. And uh, uh, none of her friends came. And it was a lot. It was pretty intense to travel the length of Manhattan almost every day to go see her. But uh, finally, she was in a coma. and. Um, and I understood that she didn't want those people to see her with edema and jaundice and her mouth hanging open and those things that you see in it, it's like uh, hard to get rid of that image and you want to remember them as you did. But one day she was in uh, a coma and she, was, she had a roommate, Mrs. King, and Mrs. King was this beautiful black woman who reminded me of Mamie and I, 
couldn't talk to my mom, so I sat there and talked to Mrs. King. And I just was trying to relate to her, and I was telling her about Mamie and going to the Memorial Baptist Church. And, and I just, I let it loose one day that, like, I felt like Mamie had taught me, like, I think I said everything I knew about love. And in that moment, my mother died. That was really hard. Um, but I learned so much um, from all these deaths. And mostly, it's that I live my life totally carpe diem. I get it. We're going to die. And my mother lived like three lives in one. She, she traveled all around the world. 100,000 miles a year before we even had such a thing as frequent flyers. And uh, so I, I just try to live my life that way, and, and uh, that's what I got. Carpe diem. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.